The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Uh, We're going to the book of Colossians today. Our church has been uh, wading through the, the book of 1 Peter together. That's W-A-D-I-N-G, not waiting, but waiting through the book of 1 Peter. And I'm excited to get back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, which is a, a very challenging and Christ-exalting portion of Scripture to dive into. And that's, uh, it's been a blessing to be in a church where we have the practice of walking through the Scriptures verse by verse and book by book. And uh, if we're studying through a, through a book, we don't skip any portion of that book. Uh, because as 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So uh, we're looking forward to jumping back into to 1 Peter uh, next week so you can read ahead to get prepared for next week's exposition. Uh, but for this week, we're going to take a, a brief detour uh, into the book of Colossians. And as uh, many of you are, are still catching your breath uh, from our first all-church retreat, just had this uh, all-church retreat this weekend, and uh, what a blessing that was to, to be a, a part of. And uh, I've been, been told that there are many people that we need to thank, so uh, we'll try to uh, try to get around it to thanking everybody. But I know so many uh, people were involved in, uh, in allowing that treat, retreat to, uh, to, to be successful, and uh, we're just thankful to God for all those who, who worked towards that. Um, but we're, we're just kind of getting off of this all-church uh, retreat, uh, and there was a, a genuine excitement about being together, and I, I don't think that it had anything to do with the, the camp food or uh, the bathroom stalls or the sleeping arrangements that some of you had. Uh, there was just an excitement and a joy about the body being together. Uh, from the time that we gathered uh, together for our first meeting, there was just a, a joy of being together. And, uh, and why is that? It's because, is it because we're, we're a perfect group of people who are, are able to, to get together? Uh, I, I remember this uh, one preacher I listened to one time. Uh, he said, some of you will say that you've never met a perfect person, but I want to let you know that you're looking at them. <laughs> and all of the humility was sucked out of the room at that very, very moment. You know, it reminds me of the story that our, our brother Riley told uh, during our sunrise service of, uh, of the, the, the guy in the church that was awarded a humility pin, you know, and they stuck it on him. And uh, by, by the time the, the church picnic was over, they had to take it back because he was parading it too proudly around to... Let everybody know that he was uh, received the, the humility award. So uh, there's no such thing as a perfect person besides Jesus Christ. And uh, this idea of complete sanctification is a lie. Uh, there have been some in church history uh, who have taught that we can be uh, entirely sanctified on this side of, of heaven, that we can experience a Christian perfection, you know, Christian perfectionism. You know, people like Wesley and Finney taught a, a version of Christian perfectionism, uh, but what they had to do was they had to accommodate themselves uh, because of sin. Because how, how do you claim that you've reached perfection and there's still sin in your life? So now you have to redefine what sin is to actually get off with saying that, you know, I'm, I've reached the state of perfection. You, you don't reach that on this side of eternity. First John 1 verse 8 says that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
And, and Paul, who was arguably one of the most dedicated Christians this world is known, says this in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already obtained it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm pressing forward, but I, I'm not there. And we will get there by God's grace. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who begun, began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a time in the future that we can look forward to be completely sanctified, but that time is not now. So, so everybody in this church and everybody who is on our retreat is somewhere in between justification and glorification. You know, somewhere in between there. We're, we're not the finished product yet. You know, I've heard that line that says, uh, to dwell above with saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, now that's another story. <laughs> and I've known some of you for uh, eight years or more, so uh, I know what that story looks like. And you've known me as well, so it goes, it goes both ways, right? I have a history here with some people for over 20 years. 20 years I've, I've known them. And it's not perfection that keeps us together. At least not our perfection, right? <laughs> it's not our perfection. And it's, it's, it's this, this kind of, of not the, the, the preferences that we have, you know, that we just enjoy the same things, you know, that we enjoy the same recreational activities, that we enjoy the same music preferences, that we enjoy the, the same taste in food. I mean, that's not what binds us together. You know, we have many different varieties of, of uh, you know, likes and dislikes, you know, right here represented among us. I mean, we found out from, from this weekend, you know, some people like chicken and some people like crickets, you know, but it's not, it's not our preferences that bind us together. What is it that binds us together? It's, 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 it's something deeper than that. It's something deeper than that. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, Colossians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 12 to 16, uh, we'll find out how uh, the, the Lord expresses this uh, binding together uh, through a series of, uh, of commands and uh, attitudes and uh, uh, longings that he gives to his people, uh, those that he's uh, transformed, those who are new creatures, that he's bound us together. And there are certain things that makes it possible for the Christian church to be able to dwell together in unity in a way that uh, doesn't exist outside of the Christian church. Take, let's take a look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 16. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving or thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this Sunday as we do every Sunday. Lord, looking to you to open our eyes, to open our understanding to what we read in your word. Now, Father, we, we don't pretend to come to this book as if we have all the answers. But we did come before the one who does have all the answers. Now, Father, we come before the, uh, the God who's authored this book. 
And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law, wonderful things in your word, God. And uh, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, If You Bite and Devour One Another, Alexander Strzok says this. He says, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, life in the world became a battlefield. Cain murdered his brother Abel. While still in the womb, the twin brothers Jacob and Esau struggled for dominance, continued their battle until adulthood. Ten of Joseph's Joseph's brothers in bitter jealousy rose to kill him, but settled for selling him into slavery. King David's own son Absalom intended to kill his father and usurp the throne. And that's just scratching the, the surface. I mean, the world became a battlefield after sin entered into the world. But there's a, another family that unfortunately wars against itself, and unfortunately it's the family of God. The, the presence of Jesus Christ was not enough to prevent his disciples from arguing with one another about who would be the greatest, and the coming of the Holy Spirit did not eliminate all fighting and controversy. But what these verses teach us is that believers have the wonderful opportunity and privilege to live graciously with one another even though we might rub one another the wrong way at times. And as a Christian, you may struggle with people who disagree with you, get underneath your skin, push your buttons, rub you the wrong way, test your patience, and all the other phrases that we use to talk about people that we don't particularly care to get along with. But God offers us here the path of peace. And we'll try to work through this quickly, but uh, the path of peace is made known throughout this section of scripture, we have the attitudes of grace in verses 12 to 13. We have the bonds of unity in verses 14 to 15. And we have the saturation of the word of God in verses 16 and 17. The answers for unity, for love, and the kind of joy that we experienced even this weekend is found right here in this text. So let's take a look first at these attitudes of grace. Look at verse 12 again with me. It says, so it's those who have been chosen of God Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. The first thing that Paul does is he reminds us of our privileged position in Christ. Basically, he's saying, do you, do you realize who you really are? Do, do you know who you are? You are chosen, holy, beloved. Those were titles that were used for the nation of Israel as God's own special possession. And now they're applied directly to the New Testament church, the Gentile believers, The special affection of God that he had for his chosen people is now given to us. Absolutely amazing to think about this because each one of these titles is totally undeserved. (laughs) Undeserved blessings. And the same was true for ancient Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you're the fewest of all peoples. Don't think that the Lord has chosen you because you were somebody great. The Lord has actually chosen you because you were one of the fewest, one of the least, one of the most overlooked group of people. You know, over in uh, Corinthians it says, not, not many are wise, not many are noble. It's like those, those are us. <laughs> we're, we're the people who don't deserve to be part of this group. But God has chosen to set his affection upon us. What did you do to be chosen by God? What what could you give credit to for you to be chosen by God? We didn't campaign to be elected. 
This is something God did apart from and outside of us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, just as he chose us in him when before the foundation of the world. You had nothing to do with this choice. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You have the unmatched privilege of being chosen by God, and you had absolutely nothing to do with it. Nothing. We didn't deserve it. And we don't deserve to be called holy. I mean, if anything fits us, doesn't fit us, it might be the word holy. That God would call you holy? I mean, like I said, I know you guys. <laughs> to, to say that I'm holy, and you know me. But what the Bible tells us, and this is one of Paul's favorite ways to greet Christians, is that you are saints. You know what saints means? It doesn't mean somebody that you put on a stained glass somewhere and that you know has to perform a couple miracles before they're elevated by the Roman Catholic Church to you know be called a saint, you know, the stained glass saints. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible lets us know that that all of us who believe in Jesus Christ are considered saints. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Do, do you know the Corinthians? <laughs> the Corinthians were a group of immature, immoral believers. These aren't the, the kind of people that you would call out of the New Testament to say, you know what, when I think about the holiest church, I think about the Corinthians. Actually, to Corinthianize was a, a word that, that meant to commit fornication. I mean, that's the kind of city that they lived in. That They were known for their immorality. But then God calls some of these same people, some of these people who were known for their transgressions in the past, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, such were some of you, talks about their sins in the past, and he calls these people, and this is what he says in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, saints by calling. With who? With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. If you're here and if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Saint Jeff, Saint Riley, Saint Chuck, Saint Justin, you know. I'm glad you're here today, Saint Mac, you know. Like we're, we're here, why? Because we've been called out by the Lord, called as saints. It's a designation that the Lord himself gives to us. It's nothing that we've done to deserve this title. It's like the, the doctrine of justification in a single term. You've been called a saint, holy ones, but not because of you, but because of the Lord who saved you. It's his righteousness that's applied to your life that makes you a holy one, that makes you a saint. We've done nothing to deserve that. We've done nothing to deserve the love of God when we hear those words, beloved, that we are beloved by God. It doesn't hit us in the way that it should because sometimes we think that we're lovable. First John chapter 4 and verse 10 says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Romans 5, 8 lets us know what kind of people the Lord loves. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You need to get a grip on your salvation. And for those who, who, who really understand how they've been saved, from where they've been saved, who they've been saved by, you now are in a position where you can start to dwell together with the brothers and sisters in unity. 
Because because I've come to the foot of the cross just like you have. And, and who can elevate themselves when they know that they're at dirt level beneath the cross? No, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. They've, they've, they've been chosen. They've been beloved by God in the same way that I am. I don't deserve this. But yet I've been included as a part of this family. We understand that we're a family who doesn't belong as a part of the family. And that allows you to be gracious towards other people. Get a grip on your salvation. Number two, put on grace. Put on these attitudes of grace. Back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 12 again. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now that phrase to, to put on is contrasted with put off, which is stated above. You know, put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. What are you to put on instead? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. I could do a mini-series on each one of these terms. But all of these terms describe the gracious response you should have towards those who sometimes make your life difficult. Those who, who irritate you, get under your skin. How are you respond to those people? Compassion. Compassion, that first word. Put on a heart of compassion. It's a word that we've studied before. It's the Greek word splanknon, uh, which is basically the word for roadkill. You know, when, when the, the guts of an animal were, were pulled out, you know, the intestines, the inner parts of a, of a, of a person or an animal. It's uh, actually where the, uh, the ancients would talk about the, the seed of emotions, you know, that, that your emotions come from your gut. You know, you ever talk that way? You know, I felt it in my gut. You know, it's talking about the, the emotions being stirred within me. It's the same word that was used for Jesus when he saw the people of Israel like, like a, a sheep without a shepherd. It says he was moved within him. He was stirred within him for the people. He had compassion. S- same, same kind of uh, 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 illustration that's given while Jesus is on the cross. Being tormented, persecuted, nailed to a wooden cross. And instead of saying, Father, fry them. He says, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. What is that? That's compassion. Being stirred with compassion even for his enemies. We're to be people of compassion, even to people who sometimes hurt us. I remember a number of years ago, uh, we were on a uh, short-term missions trip down in New Orleans, uh, a group that I was uh, uh, pastoring. I was a youth pastor down in uh, Arkansas, and we took a group to New Orleans to do some ministry. And one of the things that we did was some uh, Hurricane Katrina relief and some other things down there. And uh, we were there trying to help out this one lady. Uh, Her name was Alice. And uh, we had a nickname for her. We called her Alice in Wonderland because it just seemed like she was from another planet. You know, we went to knock on her door. She had, you know, signed up with this church to say that she needed some help. We came over there. And from the time that we showed up, she started yelling at us. It's just like, what are you doing? No, don't put that there. Put that over there. I can't believe it. She actually like hit one of our guys on the back of the head. It's like, who in the world is this lady? You know, she signs up for the church to help her, and now she's, you know, just kind of attacking everybody who's entered her home who's trying to help. But instead of, like, bailing out, I said, okay, guys, you know, let's, 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 uh, let's just serve. Let's be diligent. Let's pray for her. We don't know what's going on. After we finished serving her, this lady broke down in tears. Let us know that um, uh, about some of her background, her son was uh, addicted to drugs, addicted to, uh, to cocaine, came to her house, his mother's house, to steal from her. And she showed us on her head 
where the, the son had actually, you know, attacked her. I think he either stabbed her with like, you know, some kind of instrument or, you know, a brick or something like that. She showed us like the, the hole in her head from where her own son attacked her for money. You have no idea sometimes what people are going through. And she just started weeping and said, you know what? I'm just so thankful that somebody came over here to care for me today. Had no idea. But just like this, this act of compassion from this group was able to bring this out of this woman, that, that this was a woman who was hurting and in need. And we were able to show her and demonstrate compassion. And after that point, it's like our insides turned for this woman. You know, before they were turning for a different reason <laughs> for this woman. But now it turned in compassion. It's like, oh my goodness, this, this woman has been, been hurt. This woman is suffering. Turn in compassion towards one another. Be gracious in, in what we do. Kindness is the next word. Compassion, kindness. We're not only to be gracious in how we feel, but in how we act. And the word for kindness is a word that refers to the, the acts of kindness. It was a favorite word for uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament for, for God's tangible acts of kindness towards his people. Psalm 85 verse 12 says, Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. That's the kindness of the Lord, that he gives us these good gifts. Psalm 31, verse 19, How great is thy goodness, which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee, which thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in thee. We don't do things because people deserve it. We do it because they don't deserve it. And you know what that is? That's grace. (laughs) You, You don't deserve it. When Jesus gird himself with a towel to stoop down and wash the disciples' feet, he didn't do it because they deserved it. His betrayer was in that same group. But he stooped down and washed their feet knowing that you don't deserve this. And he becomes our example to do kindness even towards people who don't deserve it. Be gracious in the way that we think about one another. Humility is the next word. The word humility is a word that means to be brought low. It's used for the leveling of a hill. And nobody in the Greek culture would voluntarily place themselves beneath, underneath somebody. But as John MacArthur noted, it took Christianity to elevate humility. Now it's noble to be humble. And Jesus in Philippians 2 is the ultimate example of humble service, never losing any of his rights or privileges. Still God, but he humbled himself, even to the point of the cross. Jesus humbled himself as the example for us. He's the example and every one of these, gentleness, the, the next term uh, that's used here, it's a, a word that we find uh, often for um, uh, power under control. It was used of a, of, a, of, a, of a powerful force like the wind that could come across as a gentle breeze. It was used for, for, for the, the powerful horse who could throw off his rider, but he gently trot underneath the rider. It was used for medicine that was powerful enough to kill, but in the right doses it was meant to heal, Right? And Paul used it of his authority over the church. He said, I could have been severe with you guys, but instead I'm going to deal with you in, in love and, and gentleness. And the idea is it's, it's power underneath control. And again, we see the, the Lord is the perfect example of this power underneath control. The one who had the power to split mountains in two. The one who had the power to call down 12 legions of, of angels against his attackers. He restrained that power for our sake. And we're to follow his example, the example of of gentleness, gentleness. We're to be gracious in enduring or patience as well. The next word, patience. It's a word I love. It's macrothumia. 
It comes from two words, makros, which means long or long-lasting, and thumia, which means anger, and literally it means to have a long temper. A long temper. It's the opposite of having a short fuse, right? I have long temper. And again, Christ provides us with an example of one who is willing to suffer long. Christ suffered long with his disciples, didn't he? Suffered long with them. He's our example. Often think about the, uh, the Gospels. How long would the Gospels be if Christ corrected every time his disciples did something stupid? <laughs> I mean, it's just like all day long. You know, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. It's like, you know, just everything out of his mouth would have been what's wrong. But Jesus had a long fuse. I'm going to bear long with you. I'm going to bear with you. So in all of these, who becomes our greatest example? Our greatest example is Christ. He, he's the one. So instead of saying, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, he could have said, just put on Christ. Because Christ is the perfect example of all these things. And that's exactly what Paul says over in Romans 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ becomes our perfect example to follow. So why can we live together as Christians, have excitement and joy about being with one another? Why can we dwell together in unity? It's because we put on Christ. We, we put on the attitudes of Jesus Christ. How do we respond to one another? We get a grip on our salvation. We put on grace, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And number three, we put away grievances. Put away grievances. Look at verse 13. It says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. There's uh, two participles here, bearing with and forgiving, further explanations of the, the Christian virtues that we're to, to have, to put on. How do you demonstrate compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience? It's by doing this, by bearing with and forgiving one another. And the first aspect of putting away grievances is to, to bear with, to put up with, put up with minor offenses. The word, word bearing with means to endure, to be patient, to hold up. It was literally used for, for holding up a structure. It was used for enduring hardship like persecution. It was also used for putting up with foolishness and immaturity. And I believe it's uh, used in that same way in this passage that we put up with things that are even foolish and immature. Jesus over in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 17, if you want to flip over there real quick, uh, Jesus uses this, uh, this same word as he deals with his disciples. Like I said, if, if Jesus corrected his disciples all the time, uh, the gospels would be a lot longer than they are. But what we find in uh, Matthew 17 is that Jesus, Jesus endured with his disciples. And this is where just a little bit of that comes out where he reveals that. Look at verse seven, uh, 14 in uh, Matthew chapter 17. And you know the the, the, the context here is there was one who was uh, uh, brought to the disciples. And I'll go ahead and read it for you. Verse 14. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's the same word for bear, endure. Bring him, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. What we find out from that little portion of scripture is that Jesus put up with a lot from his disciples. <laughs> now he's just saying like, how, how long is this going to be? <laughs> how, how long am I going to endure with you? 
But Jesus endured his disciples' immaturity. It's astounding to think about it. We don't need to make an issue out of everything. And Jesus didn't make an issue out of every time his disciples were immature. And you don't need to make an issue out of every time somebody else is immature. Every time somebody else is, is foolish. You can, you can put up with it. You can bear it. You can endure it. You have the right to remain silent. You know, that's, that's not just part of your Miranda rights. That's, that's uh, your right to consider according to Scripture. I don't have to say something about everything. And, and really, some people can be unbearable to be around because they have to pick at everything. Just every single thing. No, you don't have to do that. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 17.9, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Can you let it go? Out of love for the other person, for the sake of, of unity, can you let it go? Many times the what you think is a sin isn't a sin at all. It's just an irritation. And overlooking is not a passive process. It's, it's something that we actively do. I'm actively going to overlook whatever this offense is, irritation is, for the sake of unity and because of the mercy of the, the gospel. Why do we enjoy unity here at BBC? One of the reasons why is because we don't pick at every single offense. You know, every irritation, everything that gets under my skin, I've got to say that, I've got to say that. That's, that's not how we live here. And there's people that have dis, disagreements, different views on different things, and we don't pick on everything. We have the biblical option to put up with minor offenses. And that's one of the ways that we have unity. It's part of enduring and the other option that we have is the, the second thing that's discussed over here in Colossians, which is forgiving. And these are the major offenses that must be dealt with. The, the, the sins against God, the sins against others that must be dealt with. It's not just the things that are irritating that I can overlook. I don't have to say something about every immaturity or everything that might be foolish. But if it's, if it's an open sin, a rebellion against God, no, these are things that I have to address. I must talk about these things. And those are the things that you have to deal with. You deal with it. We deal with sin. These are the sins that you can't overlook. Patterns in somebody's behavior. Sins that are worthy of bringing up. We follow up on serious sins. Why do we also have unity? Because we also deal with sin. That's one of the ways that we maintain unity. We deal with sin. We're not commanded to just brush off serious sins that people commit as if it's no big deal. And we're called to forgive we're called to, to seek the, the path of forgiveness. Luke chapter 17, verse 3 says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, do what? Forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. And Paul says, Whoever has a complaint against anyone over in Colossians chapter 3, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What does that mean? That means that you bring up a serious sin before your brother or sister. And you're willing to take it all the way through church discipline, if necessary, to bring it before the whole church. You know, step one, privately. Step two, bring one or two others. Step three, bring it to the church. Step four, if they still refuse to listen, you put them out of the church, according to Matthew chapter 18. That I'm committed to go through that whole process. Why? Because I want to win my brother. Because I'm so committed to my brother that I'm willing to go through the entire process. And if at any point he repents during that process, what do I do? With, with open arms, like, hey, brother, this is what I was looking for. This is what I wanted. We forgive, and that protects the unity of the church. 
You don't just brush sin under the rug. When Joseph's brothers sinned, he didn't just say, ah, it's no big deal. Yeah, you just tried to kill me, that's all. No, it's like, no, no, what you did was sin. I'm acknowledging that it's sin. But what God is, but what you meant for evil, God is meant for good. I, I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm dealing with the sin and I'm forgiving you. And this is the same thing that we're to do. We're to seek to bring up sins, not for the purpose of, of just raising up the sin, but to, to forgive it. I want to let this go. And the, the word that Paul uses here back in Colossians, this idea of forgiveness, it's the Greek word charizomai, which means that I want to deal generously with you. I want to deal graciously with you. And that's what we do in forgiveness. We're, we're dealing out grace. It's been said that uh, unforgiveness is the poison that you drink, hoping that somebody else will die. But we're taught to forgive. Be gracious. Be generous. And it's in the same manner as Christ has been generous to us. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. In the same manner as the Lord forgave. And how does the Lord forgive? This is incredible. Think about the Lord's forgiveness. How did Christ forgive you? Without setting a limit on the number of your sins? When uh, Peter questioned the Lord and says, how often shall I forgive my brother sin against me up to seven times? And he thought he was, uh, you know, being impressive. Seven times, you know, the, the rabbis of his day forgave people three times. He says, I'll double that and I'll add one. I'll, I'll, I'll do it seven times. You know, if, if I do it seven times, is that enough? Jesus said, I, I don't say up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, you know, which absolutely floored Peter, you know. 70 times 7, what are you, what are you talking about? And it, is he saying like when you get to, to, to 49 or 490, it's like, hey, I'll stop there, you know. 70 times 7, I got to 490, you're done. I've been keeping my list. That, that's not what he says. Basically, he's saying don't, don't keep track. Because I don't keep track. Every time you come to repent, I forgive. That's the way that the Lord forgives us. He doesn't, he doesn't keep a, a limit on the number of sins. And he doesn't set a limit on the kinds of sins. The kinds of sins. Mark chapter 3, verse 28 says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. The, the, the thief that mocked Jesus on the cross turned to him and said, Remember me, and it was totally forgiven. He forgives all sins. Except the, the sin of disbelief, right? The sin that we, we don't come to him with. But he, he forgives all sins. If you're willing to come to me with your sin, I'm willing to forgive. 1 Timothy 1.15 says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm foremost of all. How does Christ forgive? Without demanding a guarantee of future obedience. I'll only forgive you if you promise that you'll never do this again. If, if any, any infraction, I mean, that's it. It's not that with this promise of future or guarantee of future obedience. Luke 17, verse 4 says, If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive. I love what Ken Sandy said in his book, The Peacemakers. He says, Forgiveness is based on repentance, not guarantees. Once someone has expressed repentance for an action, we have no right to let our fears of the future delay forgiveness today. You know, we have that kind of saying, you know, fool me once, you know, shame on you. Fool me twice. You know, shame on me. I'm not going to let you fool me again. No, you get, you get one chance, you know. And if, if you do it again, that's, that's it. That's, that's not how the Lord treats us. It doesn't demand a guarantee of future obedience. We're going to keep it anyway. And he doesn't bring it back up. He doesn't hold it against us. That's how the Lord forgives. So when we read in the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 
It says, they shall not teach again. Each man know his neighbor. Each man, his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember them no more. What is that saying? Does, does God have like a bad memory? No, it's saying, I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. That's the way that the Lord forgives. I will not remember these sins against you. As uh, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And uh, one of my professors pointed out, just as an illustration, that if you start on the South Pole and you start making your way to the North Pole, you pass the North Pole, where are you heading? You're heading south again, right? You know, so it's like you can start going north and start to return south. But if you go as far as east is from the west, if you go east, you always go east. You just keep going east and you keep going east. It's, it's, it's like two points that never intersect. And basically, that's what the Lord is saying. As far as the east is from the west. It's not going to come back up anymore. I've removed these transgressions from you. What does that mean for us? It means I'm not going to think about this anymore. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to bring it up to you anymore. I'm not going to talk to others about it. And I'm not going to allow this to stand in between us. That's what forgiveness is. That's what forgiveness is. You're making a commitment that I'm not going to allow this to stand in between us. One man uh, went to see his counselor and uh, was asked to forgive his wife. And he says, I'll forgive my wife, but I'll never be close to her again. I'll forgive her, but I'll never be close to her again. And the counselor said, imagine that you just confessed a serious sin to God, and he spoke to you in that way. I'll, I'll forgive you, but I'll never be close to you again. That's not what the Lord does. He doesn't allow our sins to stand in between our relationship with him. God forgives us, and he forgives us lavishly, lavishly the Lord forgives us. Why do we enjoy fellowship of the saints? Because of the attitude of grace among this congregation? Because we can overlook minor offenses and we deal with serious offenses. That's how we can dwell together in unity. Number two, the bonds of unity. Look down at verses 14 and 15. It says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Three elements here, a love that unites, a peace that rules, a heart that gives thanks. Verse 14, we're told that uh, we're to put on, in addition to all the things that have already been said, love. Put on love. Above all these things, beyond all these things. And love is really the, the supreme command. Because if you could keep this command, you wouldn't have to worry about the rest. This is the command above all commands. Love is regarded as the supreme command by uh, Jesus Christ over in uh, Matthew chapter 22, right? It's the supreme command. And as Christians, this is the law that we're under. We're under the, the law of love. Now, James chapter 1 verse 25 calls it the perfect law. James 2 verse 8 calls it the royal law because it comes from our king, Jesus Christ. We're commanded to love. And I find it fascinating that the Bible essentially creates a word to describe the kind of love that we're to have. Because the, the, the love of the, the day didn't match the kind of love that God wanted to command his people to. So it's like the, the word agape, we've heard that term agape before, it's found very seldom outside of the scriptures. Very seldom. And even the times that it is found before the, the time of the New Testament, it's, it's, it's doubtful that it means the same thing that the Bible is talking about. Essentially, what, what that means is that the, the Bible makes up its own term to talk about the kind of love that God is committing us to. It's really a term that belongs to the church. The, the term eros can be described as a physical affection, you know, romantic love, 
Philea is the, the kind of a common interest love, the love of friendship. Storge is the, the love of family, but agape is a love that's created by God, an unconditional kind of love. Do you have any idea what that means? One New Testament theologian says this, in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, agape differs from eros in that the latter is brought into action by the attraction of the abject love. Whereas agape loves even the unlovable, the repellent, those who have nothing to offer in return, and that's the kind of love that God loves you with. The kind of love that we're loved with isn't the kind of love like, uh, you know, two opposite poles of a, of a magnet that automatically attract. You ever do that experiment in, back in school? You know, turn the, the north and south pole together and they immediately come together, but then you turn the north and the north together or the south and the south together and they move all over the place? It's like we kind of think sometimes our love to God is like the, the north and south poles that just immediately attract. That's not how it is. It's like the, the two same poles of a magnet that just like you have to exert a force to pull them together. That's the kind of love that God has towards us. It was, it was a supernatural love. It's not just a, a natural attraction. God loves us with a, a supernatural kind of, of love. The love that he loves with us with is the love that we're to love others with. And it's called here in verse 14, the perfect bond of, of unity. It's a, a word that's used for, for joining things together. Like, like in gr- uh, grammar, it's uh, used for, for the conjunctions that join words together. It was used for, for ships that are held fast by a rope. It was used for the, the human tendons and joints that, that hold together the human body. But even the, the tendons aren't a perfect union, and I learned that when I tore my Achilles tendon. <laughs> it doesn't perfectly join you together. But the love that God has is a perfect love. It's a love that, that joins us together. And this is the kind of love that the Bible says that we're to have with one another. We're, we're to love one another, which is the bond, the perfect bond of unity. This is the kind of love that we need for one another. And also a peace that rules. A peace that rules. Look at uh, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Let the peace rule. And uh, this is where context helps us out. Because sometimes people look at this verse to say, you know, let the peace rule as if, uh, you know, uh, 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 it's the, the peace in my heart that makes decisions for me. You ever hear somebody say that? You know, like I had a peace about this and that's why I did that. Or I didn't have a peace about that, so I didn't do that. And sometimes people look for the evidence of that kind of thinking, like, how do I make decisions? You know, did the peace rule? You know, was there a peace about it? That, that's not what this particular verse means. We can look at other passages talk about, you know, uh, making decisions with a clean conscience. But, but right here, what we're talking about is a, a peace, not just like an inner peace, but a peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do I say that? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So the peace that's being discussed here is a peace between people, not just like this kind of inner peace inside our minds. It's a peace that we have with one another. There's a, a pursuit of peace. We're called to pursue peace with one another. Romans 14, 19 says, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And the question that you need to ask yourself about any brother and sister in Christ is, is he part of the same body? <laughs> Does he belong to the same body that I'm a part of? If they are, you need to seek peace with that person and let the peace of Christ rule in that relationship. It'll completely change the way that you think about conflict if you start to think about people as belonging to the same body that you're a part of. 
You know, if, if, I, if I stub my, my, my toe or I, you know, hit my, my thumb with the hammer, it's like, ah, oh, got in my way again. I don't cut it off then. No, it's like you're part of my body. I can't lose you, <laughs> right? You know, so you go to it, you tend to it. It's like, I, I can't lose this part of my body. I, I even give it more attention. You know, it just doesn't get in my way and I cut it off. No, this is, this is part of me. And that's the way that we're to deal with one another. You are part of me. We are part of the same body. It'll change the way that you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, we're to have a heart that gives thanks. Look at verse 15 again. Indeed, you are called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful. All over scripture, we're commanded to, to give thanks, to give thanks to God. But particularly here, we're called to give thanks for the body. 2 Corinthians 2.13 says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, for the spirit and faith in the truth. And we see Paul constantly giving God thanks for the, uh, the, 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 the different churches that he oversaw. And one of the things that I've realized is that it's pretty hard to be bitter against somebody that you're giving thanks for. One of the things that actually a, a common uh, assignment that I'll give to people who come to me for counseling, you know, when they're struggling in their relationship, one of the things I'll say is like, why don't you write down 25 things that you're thankful for about this other person? And, and, and it's pretty hard to, to continue to be better when you're, you're thinking of all the ways that you can be thankful. We're to, to dwell with one another, giving thanks, thankfulness in our hearts to God, but particularly here, it's for the other person. Because it's in the context of this one body, that we're one body in Jesus Christ, and we're to be thankful for one another. We're to be thankful for one another. So we're to have a heart that, that gives thanks, a heart that gives thanks. And the, the final section that we'll deal with here is a, uh, a saturation with the Word of, of God. What, what else binds us together? You know, we have the, the kinds of, of attitudes that bind us together, the kind of commitments that bind us together. We also have the word of God that binds us together as well. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's a lot that we could say that we believe about the the word of God, right? That it's inspired, it's inerrant, infallible, clear, authoritative, necessary, comprehensive, But the question that I want to ask you today is, are you full of it? Are you full of the Word of God? There's a a poem that I learned a number of years ago uh, by a man named Maude Fraser Jackson. It says, what if I say the Bible is God's holy word, complete, inspired, without flaw? But let its pages stay in red from day to day and fail to learn from there God's law. What if I go not there to seek the truth of which I glibly speak for guidance on this earthly way? Does it matter what I say? doesn't matter what we say about the Word of God if, if that's not what's filling our lives. Are you full of the Word of God? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I've seen the worm eat into the leaf and consume it, so we do with the Word of the Lord. Not crawl over the surface, but eat right into it. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God. And it's those who've been raised up, put on the new self, become chosen by God, holy beloved. There's something that should be radically different about us, and it's what we feast on, right? That, that, that our nourishment, spiritual nourishment, comes from the word of God. And in verse 16, it says, to let that word dwell richly within you. 
Let, let, it, let it be at home within you is what the word dwell means. And it's to be a permanent resident. Now, that word uh, uh, to, to dwell in, it's actually a, a prefix that's attached to that word. It's to indwell in. It's, it's let it be in, in you. Let the word of God be deep within you. Let it be a permanent resident, not something that's easily dislodged. Let it permeate your entire life. Let it fill your life. Let it fill you. Let it richly dwell within you. It's to permeate every aspect of who you are. It's also to be a, a, a word that that's, uh, helps you to perceive life correctly. It gives you perception. Why do I say that? Because it's dwelling within you with all wisdom. It, you're accurately handling the word of truth. It's to dwell in us personally. Personally. In you. Let it dwell in you. Specifically in you, the believer. Not just the leadership, but you as the church. And I know this may sound basic, but it also assumes that we can understand the word of God. If, if we're to richly allow it to richly dwell within us, it's also assuming that we can understand what it says as well. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves nor alike clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believe, observe for salvation are so clearly propounded or opened up in some place of scripture that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them. What does that mean? You don't have to be some educated elite to get into the word of God. Every believer can devour and be saturated with the word of God. So we as a church are to be word-driven, Bible-dripping, scripture-saturated saints. And how do we know that we're filled with the scripture? It's by how we respond to the scripture. That's how we know that we're filled with the scripture. What does it look like to be filled with the scripture? Just take a look at what it says. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So, so there's a communication about the word that's going on. There's, there's singing, there's worship that's happening, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, all, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What, what is that saying? Like, like uh, I've heard the illustration used one time, the, the, the best way you know you have a full bucket is that you have wet feet. <laughs> if, if you've really filled with the word of God, it'll start to spill out of you. If you're filled to the brim, you're going to start to see the effects of the word of God in your life and communicating about the word of God, worshiping with the word of God, doing all that you do in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord. I mean, that's how you know that your life is filled with the word of God. And what is it that brings us excitement about being together as a church? It's because we're a church that's filled with the word of God. That's, that's what brings the excitement. That's what brings the unity. Because we're filled with scripture. There's a joy about being together with the body of Christ because we're full of the word of God. And that becomes the tie that binds us together. We're bound together to one another in Christian love because of Christ. And in each of these sections, what we find out is that all of these are because of Jesus Christ. It's all because of Christ. We're to bear with one another, forgive one another. How? Just as the Lord forgave you. We're to let the peace of who rule in us. It's the peace of Christ. We're to let the word of who dwell within us. It's the word of Christ. All that we do, we're to do in the name of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he's, he's just saturated throughout this text. All of it comes back down to him. Being full of the word having these kinds of uh, uh, attitudes and actions in our lives, it all points back to our connection to Jesus Christ. There's a joy about being part of the body, being connected with one another, because our connection with one another also shows that we're connected to Jesus Christ. 
It's not because we're perfect. We're not. That's not why we enjoy being together. It's because there's a tie that binds us together, and it's our unity in Jesus Christ and Christian love with one another. Amen. There was a man by the name of John Fawcett who was born on January 6, 1740 in Yorkshire, England. And uh, Fawcett was converted at the age of 16 under the ministry of a famous evangelist named George Whitfield. And three years later, he began attending a, a Baptist church in Bradford, England. And having begun to preach, he was ordained as a Baptist minister in a city known as Waynesgate, Yorkshire. And in 1772, he was invited to London, which is the big city. This is the capital of England. The nation's capital. He's invited to the nation's capital to succeed John Gill a famous pastor, a pastor of Carter's Lane Baptist Church, which was a large and influential church. So here this this man from the small town is invited to the big city, to the nation's capital, uh, to be the, the pastor of this large and growing influential church. And on the day of Fawcett's departure, because he agreed to go on the day of his departure, so this is the, the day that he's supposed to leave, he had preached his farewell sermon, his wagons were loaded, He was ready to go, but he became so overcome by the thought of leaving the congregation that he had come to love that he canceled his plans and stayed in Waynesgate. In 1793, Fawcett was invited to become the president of the Baptist Academy in Bristol. Again, another move, and he similarly declined it. His heart was bound to his people, and he considered it a blessed tie that bound him to his church. And he wrote these words of this famous hymn. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of Christian minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. We, when we asunder part, it gives us inward pain. But we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. This glorious hope revives our courage, by the way, while each in expectation lives and longs to see the day. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin we shall be free, and perfect love and friendship reign through all eternity. He he had a, 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 a pain in his soul to leave his congregation. He says, why, why would I leave the congregation that I've come to love so much? And it's a a pain for me to even be apart from you. I can't think about going to another church, regardless of how big it is. I don't care how influential the ministry is. I'm not going to go out and become this president of this school. Why, Why would I leave the church that I've come to grow to love? It would pain me to leave you. And that's the kind of affection that we should have for the body of Christ. That if we're connected with one another, that we understand that we're part of the same body and it's a blessed tie that binds us together. And that's one of the reasons why we as a church enjoy being together. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this opportunity that we've had to look at your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us to to grow in our affection for one another, uh, that we would have the kind of unity that scripture uh, speaks about, uh, the unity that's centered around Jesus Christ and uh, and displays these uh, different attitudes and, and actions of, of unity and uh, is based upon the, uh, the word of God, our, our, our spiritual diet that we all partake of. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, these things would be true of us and uh, may you receive all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.
You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.